Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, with a message titled, What Kind of Messiah? So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22, and 41 to 46, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've entitled today's teaching from Matthew as a question. What kind of a Messiah, I ask? What kind of a Messiah was Jesus? Now, rather than simply you know, being a historic question, we might then add an additional question of our own. What kind of a faith is the Christian faith? And I mean here to ask the question of the relation of our faith to the culture in which we live. See, as I see it, there are several answers that can be given. And before I go any further, let me confess, I'm borrowing my thoughts from an older classic entitled Christ and Culture. It's a book that was written by the late Richard Niebuhr. There have been those within modern-day liberalism who imagine that the role of the Christian faith is to fit in with the culture. You see that when you look at how some churches respond, let's say, to the question of homosexuality, or for that matter, to the entire gender revolution. Their understanding of the faith is that the culture determines the agenda, and the Christian faith is about coming alongside and assuring the culture that God's blessing is on them. See, many today don't have a memory. The liberals in Germany at the time of the Nazi revolution, those liberal Christians were all pro-Nazi. It was Bible-believing Christians that stood against Hitler and refused to compromise. But I'll leave that discussion to another time. Let me not get off track. There are also those who argue that the role of the Christian faith is to dominate the culture. That is, the Christian faith does affirm the highest aspirations of a culture, such as, you know, the desire for truth and justice, but then it adds values of its own, love, hope, the gospel of Jesus. In essence, you know, that's been the goal of historic Roman Catholicism that seeks to wed the church with the state and then leads to a Christian society. Still others are more modest in their approach. These are those who think the Christian faith is to be like salt and light. Or to use another biblical example, we're to think of ourselves like Daniel living in Babylon. That is, the presence of Christians in society does change the society, at least to some degree. Again, using Daniel and Babylon as our example, Babylon is always going to remain Babylon. It never becomes Jerusalem. It never becomes the city of God. But Daniel's influence in Babylon did make a difference. See, at one point, even Nebuchadnezzar himself confessed that the Most High rules all the kingdoms of men. And so this view is that Christians prophesy to the culture. They do make changes. You might want to think of William Carey in India. His influence as a Christian missionary brought to an end a practice known as seti. That was the practice of burning widows alongside of their dead husbands. See, finally, there are those who think of Christianity, that Christians should stop thinking of transforming the culture at all. Rather, Christ came to establish his church, which is a radical alternative to the culture. And when we come to Christ, we forsake this world completely. We join ourselves to his kingdom, and we stand in radical opposition to all that's in the culture. Now, I don't hope to answer all these questions today, but I hope you agree the question of the relationship of Christ to culture, it's, it's fascinating. But I raise this here because the question that Christians struggle with today, what's my role as a citizen in the nation in which I live? You know, that's a contemporary one. Am I to be a patriot? 
Am I to be a revolutionary? Am I to be a prophet? Am I to set up a community that lives in complete rejection to my nation as well as to the values of my culture? I hope you see it. Even while Christians haven't thought through all of these options as to where in Scripture they might stand, I hope you see everyone makes decisions about these things. Years ago, while visiting friends in the U.S., we went to a church on Sunday, and I noticed a bumper sticker on the back of a big pickup truck. It said, two men died for you. The U.S. soldier died for your freedom, and Jesus died for your salvation. Now, regardless of how you feel about that slogan, good or bad, indifferent, do you see that the slogan itself indicates that there's a relationship that person feels should be the relationship of the Christian faith to his nation? See, we've already said in our study of Matthew 21 to 25, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's proclaimed as the son of David, heir to David's throne. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And as Messiah, we would have expected that he would fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 2, verse 9. He shall break them, that is the nations, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. To a great many in Israel, that was hope. When the Messiah comes, Roman oppression is going to come to an end. The Messiah is going to dash Rome to pieces as a potter might throw a defective pot onto the floor and break it in pieces. And now with the events of the last two days, all of Jerusalem is inflamed. The Jewish religious leaders have already concluded that Jesus is not the Messiah, and so they view him as a threat. He's gained ever more followers, making them, that is the Jewish religious leaders, ever more irrelevant. And furthermore, eventually, given this messianic fervor that's sweeping the city, it must now seem like only a small while until the Roman army under Pontius Pilate will spring into action. See, up to now, they've done nothing, no doubt. They don't see any armed resistance, and they must think this is going to blow over. So they don't act, at least not yet. The religious leaders of Israel have sought to put Jesus on his heels. By what authority, they ask, are you doing these things? And Jesus has answered so decisively that he's put the religious leaders on their heels. Clearly, another approach is called for. So let's go to our text, Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to him, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Well, now, in order to understand this encounter, let's start at the beginning. It says the Pharisees went and plotted. Now, see, up till now, we've seen Jesus engaged in verbal jousting with the chief priests and the elders. The chief priests were always Sadducees. The Sadducees belonged to the ruling class. They're the liberals of their day. They concluded there was no resurrection from the dead. They'd also concluded that the talk of the Messiah was merely symbolic. We shouldn't expect a literal one. And so because the Sadducees were wealthy and politically well-placed, they had every reason not only to reject Jesus, but would have wanted to shut him up as quickly as possible. 
but they can't for fear of the adoring crowds. And furthermore, Jesus had so thoroughly rebuked them, they were afraid what more confrontation might bring. I mean, how do you handle this Jesus? He's quick-witted. He's intelligent. He's not afraid. He speaks remarkably well. With every encounter, he gets more followers. And so the Sadducees step back and the Pharisees plot. It's, it's fascinating this, that the Pharisees, so deeply opposed to the Sadducees, would agree with the Sadducees on one matter. Someone's got to stop Jesus. And so the leaders of Israel's Bible teachers, the Pharisees, are thinking of a different approach, and they come up with an amazing strategy. They will not approach Jesus directly because he's going to recognize them. The minute he sees them, he's going to know they're up to something. He's going to be wary. He's going to be on his game. And so they send their disciples, their trainees, they're to approach him with flattery. Only they won't go alone. They'll go with the Herodians. You know, the Herodians were the supporters of the Herods. You know, when you read the New Testament, you just keep reading about Herod. You know, Herod when Jesus was a baby, Herod in his ministry. Well, it's a different Herod, but they're all kings from the same family line, rulers of Israel on behalf of the Roman emperors. What a strange group. Disciples of the Pharisees who are hoping for the Messiah, along with the Herodians who are invested in stopping any Messiah and continuing Roman rule. Ah, but this strategy looks brilliant. They're going to look like they're engaged in a debate. And furthermore, they're going to approach Jesus not to confront him, rather to ask of his perspective. It's brilliant. The question they're going to pose will entrap Jesus. It really won't matter how he answers. Either way, what he says will be used against him, and it's going to divorce him from the crowds. So they're going to ask Jesus to tell them whether it is God's will to pay taxes to Caesar. And if he says no, he'll be leading a seditious movement, attempting to disobey Roman laws, making him subject to Roman criminal prosecution. If he says yes, he'll appear as no Messiah at all, for what Messiah would argue that his followers should bend their heads and continue to accept this symbol of Roman oppression. They have him. In answering the question of his relationship to earthly powers of his day, no matter how he answers, he's going to be rejected. You know, we read this and we should think, not only was that a hot question in Jesus' day, it is in ours as well. What is the relationship of the Messiah to the political structures of our day. And yeah, we know that Jesus came the first time to die for our sins, and he's gonna come again to establish his eternal kingdom. But what of the meantime? How does he relate to the state? The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like no other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our most recent trip said, listening to Pastor John teach the Bible while looking and breathing the air where the events he speaks about may have actually happened puts doubts of the authenticity of the Bible to rest. So make plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming spring from April 16th to the 24th, 2023 and consider the optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. Join us in the Holy Land with on-location teaching from Dr. John Newfeld and wonderful evenings of entertainment with Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway and very special musical guest, Amanda Stott. For more information, the trip itinerary or registration forms, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
It's fascinating how this group of rehearsed and deceitful people approach Jesus. They're all smiles. They're filled with compliments. Teacher, they say, we know you're true. That is, we recognize you're a legitimate teacher of Israel. Those Sadducees who approached you earlier, the ones who asked you by, by what authority you do these things, well, we don't agree with those guys. You've got plenty of spiritual authority. Oh, the craft, the power of compliments. And then they add, we also know you teach the way of God truthfully so much so you don't care about human opinions. Well, here's an idiom. You do not look at the face of men, they say. Oh, how unusual you are. Aren't we so glad that we can trust you to help us through this debate that we're having? Tell us what you think. Should we pay this tax? See, many think that the tax they were referring to, it was a poll tax. It was a tax that was collected by the Roman government in which every male in Judea was required to pay a tax to Rome. It was an imposition, and this tax, perhaps more than others, was one that spoke most of Roman occupation. Well, now, Notice that Jesus has no respect for this group. He smells what's up instantly. Notice his response. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? He's telling them he knows what they're up to, and he's not fooled by them. The word hypocrite, that's appropriate. A hypocrite is someone who says one thing actually means something else. A hypocrite wears a mask. He pretends at something. He's secretly about something else. Jesus is saying, let's cut the pretense. I know who you are. I know what this is about. See, all that plotting on how to trap Jesus as to how to get him to lower his defense, you know, in a second, that's all gone. They might well have not plotted at all for all they got out of this. Why didn't the Pharisees just come themselves and straight up ask? But now the hypocrisy of these men is exposed. They're not to be trusted. And I suppose Jesus could have sent them away with that. But I also suspect the question would have come up again. Like a politician who won't answer a question, he or she is going to soon find out that the longer he or she doesn't answer, the more certain it's going to be the question is going to haunt him. Oh, with that, Jesus asks for the coin for the tax, and they bring him a denarius. Well, a denarius was the equivalent of a day's wage for the average worker of that day. So on top of all the other taxes you paid, Rome would levy this grievous one-day tax for your work. Bring me a denarius, and this coin would have been fascinating. You know, we can't say with surety whether the coin was an older one back from the time of Augustus or in Jesus' day from the time of Tiberius. But in any case, it's, it was really the same. On the front, it would have been a picture of, let's say, Tiberius. It would have said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the backside, it would have said, highest priest. At any rate, the coin would have been blasphemous to most Jews. I mean, placing an image of a coin in itself was a problem. An image represents that someone is claiming to be a god. Or in this case, that he's the son of the divine Caesar, making it sound like the current emperor is the son of a god. Now, please understand that later, after the church was formed, when the followers of Jesus called Jesus the Son of God, they were saying, no, no, not the emperor, rather Jesus, he's the rightful Son of God. Can you imagine what a political statement that must have sounded like? It makes it seem like the early Christians were revolutionaries denying the authority of Caesar. But let's get back to Jesus holding the coin aloft. What was he going to say? I mean, maybe the Herodians were ready for this. You know, if he belittles the image of the emperor, we're going to charge him with sedition. And the Pharisees also waited. Will he honor the image of the man who calls himself a son of a God? 
See, many theologians have wondered what to make of Jesus' answer. I've heard some argue that Jesus' answer is not valid. Don't all things belong to God, they ask. Indeed, I suppose they do, for even the emperor belongs to God. But as we find out in later parts of the New Testament, God does appoint the emperor to do God's will. The emperor is supposed to punish evildoers and those who act wickedly. No, no, it does no good to say that Jesus' answer is wrong. For although all things, in fact, do belong to God, God in his sovereignty has determined to give kings and governors, emperors, and political leaders a realm of authority in this age. And so, well, what did Jesus mean when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? So let's agree at the outset that Jesus is not evading the question or giving a clever response, hiding what he truly thinks. Rather, he's speaking quite clearly. He is saying, yes, pay the tax. Honor God does not mean dishonoring the emperor. After all, the governing authorities are called upon to protect an orderly society, to be a terror to lawless people, to build roads and infrastructure, to provide protection, and a whole awful lot of other things that people enjoy. Jesus is saying, pay the tax. But Jesus added something. While you're required to pay the tax, you're also required to render to God the things that are God's. So what does that mean? He means that some things actually belong uniquely to God. When God claims his due, he must not be refused. In what things? Well, they've got to include worship, gratitude, service, obedience, all those things commanded of us. It means that the emperor is to be obeyed whenever his commands do not clash with the divine commands. And there is no divine command that is circumvented when one pays a poll tax. And that's important in our day, when so many people try to make the argument that we need to disobey the government's laws. Look, I'm aware that some laws are unpopular. Some laws are foolhardy. Some even leave a very bad taste in people's mouths and must be changed. But we need to be very careful that if we are to disobey a government law that we give clear and certain reasons from Scripture to clearly indicate why we as believers cannot obey a said law. See, those reasons should be based on something that's clear in the text of Scripture. And that brings us back to an earlier question. Just what kind of a Messiah is Jesus? And so while Jesus answered the question of whether one was required to pay the poll tax, saying that Caesar, according to Scripture, has a realm of authority that God has given him, we still have to come back to the question of the Messiah. What kind of a Messiah is he? And for the purposes of our discussion, let's skip forward now to Matthew 22, 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus in this section appears to have approached the Pharisees. Let me put it in my words. He seems to be saying, since you boys are eager to ask questions about the Messiah's credentials, let's find out what you actually know about the Messiah. Remember the Greek word Christos, translated in our English Bible as Christ, comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. Jesus asks them, what do you know about the Messiah? What do you think of him? Whose son is he? What genealogical line must he come from? And without hesitation, they answer him biblically. 
He comes from David's royal line. And with that, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, which everyone would have agreed upon. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of David. David is speaking. The psalm begins, the Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, that is David's sovereign, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Let me put it another way. David says, I heard God say to my sovereign, the one before whom I bend the knee, sit at my right hand until I destroy your enemies. Well, there's a lot in that psalm to consider. Clearly, Messiah is the son of God who has the authority of God, who demands David bow before him, who sits at the right hand of the Father. But rather than considering all of that, Jesus asks the Pharisees only one question. If the Messiah is David's son, why does David bend the knee to him and call him his Lord? And of course, the Pharisees don't know. They don't know that the Messiah would eventually be what John would reveal, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him should have eternal life. Indeed, the Pharisees, who were quick to condemn Jesus, saying he's not the Messiah, those same Pharisees are now confessing they know so little about the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And I might add, so do we. If we don't know what David did, call him Lord and bow before him. Jesus must be worshiped. So in order to answer our initial question, let's get back to it. What kind of faith is the Christian faith? An answer, it's a faith that unquestionably worships Jesus as Lord and God. And because in this present hour, before he returns, and before he puts all enemies under his feet, let's acknowledge that he has put sinful nations in place with their governors and mandated that we, as Jesus followers, pay taxes to them. For my part, I think the relationship to the state that Christians have is like the relationship that Daniel had to Babylon. For I think there is no Christian country until Christ returns. Yet we seek to bless whatever country we live in. We seek to be in compliance whenever the commands of God don't forbid it. Thanks for your message today, John. Let me ask you, how should a believer think about his country? What, what place should we hold our country in our hearts? Yeah, I like the example of Daniel and Babylon always have. I think uh, whatever country we live in, we must not think of it as Jerusalem. I mean, it's never going to become Jerusalem. We're not going to see our country transformed to become the thing that Christ wants. I mean, it's not the millennium now. Uh, so we're living in Babylon. And yet, as Daniel and Babylon, he continued to do great benefit to his nation. I think we should think of our nation in that fashion. Bless it wherever we can. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We never get tired of hearing how listeners are impacted by the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. It's always such an honor when you take the time to let us know the ways you've been encouraged. One Back to the Bible Canada listener recently wrote, I'm grateful for your encouraging and truthful teaching of God's Word. May God continue to richly bless this ministry. Susan, a listener of Laugh Again with Phil Calloway wrote, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. There are so many days in which I need a boost of encouragement and an uplifting perspective on life. I love the way you approach each day with a smile. Thanks for making me laugh. If you'd like to share with us your spiritual journey and how it's been impacted through these ministries, 
don't hesitate to do so. Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.